0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. I, I got a message from an editor at, I think it was Cosmo Magazine some years ago asking me for their New Year's issue if I could do a, a, a Buddhist piece on how to make New Year's resolutions more permanent. Um, and I said, well, permanence isn't like the Buddhist thing, actually. You have to look someplace else for that. But it is kind of wild here. It's 2014, at least... For me, the year 2000, remember Y2K and everybody was getting worried about the meltdown of every computer in the whole It seemed like it just happened, you know. It just spins around so quickly. And what could I say? Happy Perihelion Week, for those of you who didn't know that. This, a few days ago, was the day that the Earth is closest to the sun. Um... Now it turns out that even though we're a little closer to the fireplace, that's not really what changes the summer and winter. it's the Earth's axis that does it. But I hope you enjoyed the, you know coming close to our neighbor star. And as I spoke about, before the new year, I in December had the opportunity to uh, lead a retreat together with Ramdas. Um, and the theme of the retreat was finding grace amid suffering or transforming suffering into grace. Um, And it was very moving, quite touching to be with people often who came because they were in the middle of great difficulty. Um, And Ramdas was uh, really a kind of exemplar of love, he was just so loving and kind to everybody, no matter what they were going through. Um, and at the same time, he wasn't afraid of their suffering. People would come who's, who had lost children or who had various tragedies. And he would love them, but he wouldn't. Um, he said, I, I, I'm not going to get into the melodrama of it. I'm just going to love you. It was really kind of wild. So this from an Indian saint, he says, go ahead, light your incense, ring your bells, Call out to the, can- to the gods, light your incense, ring your bells, call out to the gods, but watch out, for the gods will come and they will fire up the forge and put you on the amble and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So some people enter spiritual life like looking for some, you know, some force or some spirit to come and help them. Um, I don't even think you have to call out, frankly, (laughs) they come, you know, they do. And what you see as we go through this turning of the calendar year, and you take your seat in meditation, there's your breath breathing itself and your thoughts appearing and disappearing, and your feelings coming and going, is that you live in a world of change, the ineluctable modality of the visible and audible um, is James Joyce's description of it. <coughs> Little Breath, writes W.S. Merwin, who was our poet, National Poet Laureate. Little Breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And so you take your seat and you feel the life breath of your body And then feel that you are not only breathing your body, but in some way you're part of the cycles and breathing of life itself. Now, I'm very aware, as many of you are, that this is the driest year past on record. And that there hasn't been any rain and looking to see on the... uh, Websites about weather prediction that it looks like there might not be rain for another month or more because of the high pressure that's uh, Complex that's over the North Pacific Um, And you walk out on the land and everything says it's thirsty, but it's more than that You know you think that global climate change and so forth is going to affect Bangladesh or maybe Staten Island but not Marin, not San Francisco, guess what, it's us, it's our earth, and we're a part of this, and our, our interconnection demands of us a kind of care and stewardship that's not separate from Bangladesh or Staten Island or Sausalito. I was on Mount Tam a couple of years ago um, I'd gone up to the top because it was a day that, um, astronomically, that had the, the transit of Venus across the face of the sun. I don't know if anybody remembers that. but And Fort went up with some friends, and fortunately, there was someone up there who'd set up quite a large telescope. So you could look in the telescope, and there was the disk of the sun with all the little kind of flaming things out, like kids draw in their drawings, right, and few sunspots. And there was this little tiny black round disc, maybe about one—I don't know—one fortieth of the diameter of the sun. This little circle that was slowly moving its way across the disk of the sun. And somehow I could feel like, oh, these are uh, these are the little planet balls like we're on that are oh. going around <laughs> that are going around this star. You could somehow get that feeling in looking at it, um, and that's what we're doing. You know, we're taking our voyage around our star. So you sit. You come to sit in meditation. And you come to quiet your mind, steady yourself, soften the heart, maybe become a little bit more present, reduce the stress. And as you sit and meditate and begin to listen in a deeper way, you notice that wherever you put your attention is in change. The river of thoughts, the feelings, the perceptions, all the things, the sensations of the body. And not only are they in change, but they're un- ungovernable. That you might think, I don't want those thoughts, right? Or those feelings I like and those ones I don't like, or I don't want those sensations. Does it listen? <laughs> it has no pride and it will do anything, right? <laughs> and so you're there with this river of experience that's unfolding, which is your mysterious human incarnation and you notice that it actually is a river that it's changing the quieter you get the more you feel the flow of change the fact that it's ungovernable and actually it's insubstantial and in some fundamental way it's unreliable because it keeps even the best of it is there for a little while and turns into something else And so you don't own it. You get to experience it, but it's not yours. And so here you are. You take your seat in the mystery of being a human being, this human incarnation. And you notice the body breathes. But it's not just the body that expands and contracts. Um, I mean, the breath, the the heart pumps and expands and contracts. The cerebral spinal fluid does. The, you know, um, your... You'll notice your mind opens and closes. Anybody noticed ever a closed mind? Have you ever met one? (laughs) You know everything opens and closes and the point isn't that you're supposed to okay now I'm gonna get it open. I'll love everything. I'll be completely open and it'll never change. (laughs) Ah, That would be death, right? (laughs) Things change and the point is to take your seat in the mystery of this change and to allow your awareness to be like the depths of the ocean, which is an image that the Buddha used. And on the surface of the ocean are storms and waves and rainbows and maybe even, you know, cargo ships or whatever, um, and sailboats and, uh, and all of the things that happen on the surface which can be acknowledged and, and actually valued But at the same time, there is a dimension of life, of awareness that you can discover, tune into, rest in that is silent and deep and embracing of all that, but also with a perfect balance with it, a kind of wisdom that says, yes, these are the inevitable changes on the surface. And here's the stillness of awareness underneath it all. The eight worldly winds that are in Buddhist psychology, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. I mean, even in the room tonight, I noticed the windows weren't cracked and the top wasn't open, so it got really stuffy. Then Sean turned on the blower, then it got really cold, right? What do you want, stuffy or cold, right? (laughs) So now it's getting stuffy again. Pretty soon it'll turn on and it'll get cold again. I want it perfect. I just want it this way, and I don't want it to change. Sorry, wrong planet. So here you have this human body, and let's get real about it. Um, The Buddha says, did you never see in this world a man or a woman 80, 90, 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crutches with tottering steps, broken teeth, infirm. And did the thought never occur to you that you too are subject to this? That's a kind of a serious thing to say, isn't it? Um, But the wild thing is that it's true. (laughs) That's really the wild thing, that we have this human life and it's temporary and our body is a work in progress that we contend and love and care for and jog and stuff like that and exercise (laughs) but also it gets older and gets sick and it does what it does and you sit quietly and you notice the rhythms of your body pleasure and pain and sickness and health or you notice your feelings and the feelings are like uh, a waterfall Zen Master Suzuki Roshi talked about how when he went to Yosemite, he said the biggest waterfall I saw was 1,340 feet, and the water looked like a a curtain when I saw it coming down. And then as I got closer, I saw the curtain was made of little individual drops. And then I thought, what a hard thing it must be for that little drop that was part of the river to be all by itself falling down 1,340 feet. And he said, and it felt like our life in that way. We come out of the river of being <clears throat> and then we're separate for a while from that river, of that mysterious river that we're all born from. And we feel ourselves separate and it's not so easy. He says, and then, and then we rejoin the river. Let me see if I can find that other passage, part of that passage of what he says. Um... You do not realize, you're separated by birth from the oneness, like the drop of water. You don't realize that you're one with the river and with the universe, and so you have fear. Whether it's separated into drops or not, water is water. Life and death are the same thing. When we realize this deeply, we have no fear anymore. We have no difficulty with our life. He goes on, but it's not so easy Your practice of meditation can cultivate this understanding for you. For when you find this deep understanding, even though you have difficulty falling upright from the top of the waterfall to the bottom of the mountain, you will enjoy your life. And so there's some sense that when you know that things change and accept it or find your composure in it, As Suzuki Roshi goes on, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, you find yourself in nirvana. That nirvana isn't in the Himalayas or it's not in (coughs) some ancient text or some other kind of esoteric imagination. It's the invitation to find peace in your own heart where you are amidst change. You can't stop the waves but you can learn to surf, someone said. That's kind of meditation 101, right? And the interesting thing is that you sit in meditation and you feel liking and disliking and pleasant and pain, and first you try to rearrange the furniture, but all you have to do is sit for not very long and you realize that it's kind of useless because the thoughts keep trooping out of emptiness and doing what they want and the feelings keep coming and the perceptions and your views on things. Have you noticed... I mean, you have views, right? And they're just that. I remember in psychology 101, professor fills three buckets with water. Okay, one bucket has hot water; you can just barely put your hand in. One bucket in the middle, room temperature. One bucket is full of ice and water. Invites the unwitting, first psychology 101 student volunteer to come up. And place their hands in the two outer buckets and hold them there as long as they can. OK, get one of the young guys. I can do this, right? Hand in the cold bucket, hand in the hand in the hot bucket as long as you can. OK? And after 30 seconds or so, it's very hot and very cold. Pull their hands out, and then place their two hands into the middle bucket. And then there's always this really funny expression on their face. whoever it is, the young man, young woman, doesn't matter because their hands are touching. And one hand feels the water is really cold, and the other hand feels like the water is really hot in the same bucket of water. You understand, right? We make opinions and views and perceptions, and they're just tentative. And a little while later, you were a libertarian, and then you decide, well, maybe you'll try being a Democrat or vice versa, or (laughs) Republican, or whatever it happens to be. So meditation is an invitation to rest in mindful awareness or loving awareness and to see from the wisdom eye or from the heart of understanding that to be incarnate is to live in a river. The Buddha described our life as five rivers, rivers of feelings and perceptions and thoughts and sensations, and that that's what you are. And when you would see this and sense it, and really understand it, you become more gracious. And so these the statuary, the kind of images. There's the Buddha seated there with his hand touching the earth, and the witness of the earth, in the midst of all the difficulties of life. Or, or Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, sitting with this great composure. They're really symbols of an inner graciousness or stillness amidst the joys and the sorrows that make up life. It's been really apparent to me, um, maybe because I'm getting older, but I recently, and just in the last week or two, I visited a friend whose house burned down in the Big Sur, R- Pfeiffer Ridge Fire, went to see their house, and they'd had this beautiful home, two stories filled with artifacts and photographs and all that. Ash. Really, nothing. It was a very hot fire, 33 homes burned, and there was nothing. It was there, and now it's not. It's really kind of wild, you know? And then six weeks or so ago, I got a call from my twin brother, who's a professor in Maine of genetics and population biology, and we'll explore all kinds of things. And he found out that he had myelofibrosis, which is a kind of blood cancer. And I was very worried. I am worried. Um, because he's sort of of in the middle of it. And they say, well, life expectancy, maybe two years or something like that. Then he went down to the Harvard Medical School Cancer Center. And they said, well, you might be a candidate for stem cell replacement therapy. And so, but we have to find a match. So my brothers and I, I have have three brothers, and we all tried to see whether we're a genetic match. And two of us are, so I'll probably be his donor. And so from being really worried because I love him very much and I'm very touched by what he's going through as anybody, now it's like, oh, okay, maybe it'll be a bit better than we thought. I mean, if I'd thought that some weeks before, I would have been, oh, this is terrible, but it's better than it was. and And it might be all right. And then I have this friend who just, close friend who just lost their job, um, and then, you know, a little while later, uh, we've been trying to raise money to build this wonderful new community hall to replace the trailers that we're in. Um, and it's going very well. We're about to start building in April after a long campaign. And a little Christmas check came in for half a million dollars anonymously. Oh, here. You know, thank you. Hallelujah, right? And then these other friends who would tried for a really long time to get pregnant and were unable to got pregnant and the pregnancy ended with this beautiful baby girl, you know, and it's fantastic. And then this other friend who I'm close to called and it turns out that she's losing her memory, you know. And then Steve Stuckey, who was the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, a very dear, wonderful man. Um, he had, uh, about 12 weeks ago, um, pain and went in and they said you have fourth stage pancreatic cancer. He died last week, I guess it was, and um, he did it with such dignity and he gave this talk about gratitude. He said, there's nothing I can do, so I might as well be grateful for all I've been given and all that I know and all the people that I love and such courage and straightforwardness and then I guess I should, in honoring him, read his death poem here. Zen masters are supposed to write a death poem, you know kind of make it a little classy way to exit <laughs> he says this human body truly is the entire cosmos each breath of mine is equally one of yours beautiful mm. my darling this is a phrase that Thich Nhat Hanh uses my darling some how this kind of intimacy this tender abiding in my life is the fierce glowing fire of inner earth linked with all pre-phenomena flashing to the distant horizon from right here now to just this. And now the horizon itself drops away. Bodhi, which means liberation. Bodhi, Swaha. And so it's his, his last song, if you will. His last prayer. So we're all in the same boat? Is that the- <laughs> maybe that's the right word, um, of human life. And how are you going to live it? You could try to hold on and think that, well, if I do it right, I'll only have pleasure and not pain. I'll only have gain and not loss. I'll only have praise and not blame. Anybody succeed? I know you worked at that for a while. Raise your hand, you can have your $8 back, right? (laughs) Right. So after the, after the World Trade Centers um, collapsed um, and after the first uh, week or two of all the emergency things died down, then there came a whole community of people who were working to, uh, working on what was called the pile, all that was there to try to pull out both bodies and, and Uh, disentangle what had collapsed. It took about a year, and as the various construction workers and equipment and people went in to do it, there also grew a support community. A makeshift community of helpers sprang up around all of us who were working there, and there was a crew of, I don't know, 5,000 people were working there. Helpers like proverbial grass blades poking through the pavement and the stories are, are legendary, giant vats of Cajun food cooked up by a crew that materialized from New Orleans, truckloads of brand-new boots donated to workers whose own had virtually melted off, you know. 10,000 volunteers of every political strike, income level, race, sexual persuasion, religion or no religion, had transubstantiated tragedy into an ad hoc affirmation of humanity's indestructible goodness. There was one fellow, Joseph Brady, a 55-year-old hard hat crane operator who had helped to build the World Trade Center when he was 21 and volunteered to pull up the wreckage. Like so many workers at the site, he'd been overwhelmed by the carnage sinking slowly to the curb after his first night under the savagely bright arc lamps, his head cradled in his hand. That's when the Salvation Army kids appeared, he remembered, in their sneakers with their pink hair and their belly buttons showing and bandanas trout around their faces. They came with water and cold towels and took my boots off and bathed my feet and put dry socks on. And then when I got to House and Street, a bunch more of these kids all pierced and tattooed with multicolored hair had made a little makeshift stage, and they started to cheer as we came out, and that was it for me. I never identified with these people before, but I started crying, and I cried for four blocks. I can't tell you, I was taken so off guard. As a construction worker, I've always been viewed as a pest, as rude, and now I was so touched by this, and I got home and saw my wife, and she said, Joe, are you okay? I said, sure. She said, well, go look in the mirror. And there I was, my filthy, dirty face and just two clean lines rolling down each cheek. So there is suffering and loss, and there's also the grace of the human heart to say, yes, we'll take this inevitable change. This is what you get. You, you have... Um, 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. You have the ocean of tears and the unbearable beauty of the world. Um, and to live wisely is to find your composure amidst it all. When my teacher, Ajahn Chah, his favorite phrase was na in Thai, which means it's it's uncertain, isn't it? He also would say, then, relax. It's kind of the laughter of the wise. And in this famous story of him when we were visiting. And it was a whole group of us, Joseph Goldstein and Mark Epstein, a friend from New York, a Buddhist teacher, and Ram Das, and a whole crew of us were visiting Anjan Chah. And that's when he held up this beautiful antique Chinese cup that he, someone had given him. He was drinking from it. And he said, for me, the cup is already broken. He said, I know I could put it on the table, and by accident, my elbow would knock it off. You know, Or someone will come along and move things and it will fall. And someday, he said, this is going to break. He said, so I know that. And therefore, I hold it. It's precious. I don't know how long I'll have it. I drink from it. I use it. I admire it. And when it's gone, it was already broken. And he just laughed. Mm -hmm. My, nah, it's uncertain. Mm -hmm. So he would say, things are uncertain. You can either hold on which doesn't help much, or you can relax. There are three rules for writing the great English novel, said Somerset Maugham. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) Same for living your life. It's really more like Braille, that you open yourself to a new day, with its joys and its sorrows and its gain and its loss, I read a story of this couple that went up to drove up 400 miles to go visit the the biggest botanical garden in in the eastern part of Canada. I guess it was outside of uh, Toronto, um, and it had a it was supposed to have an amazing collection of bonsai and bonsai trees and and so forth and they got there and there was a, this giant beautiful gate and the Sinauts had closed and that was their weekend and they would driven 400 miles and so one of them got really upset we came all this way we should have checked and and he said his partner looked at it just got really quiet and then decided to do some walking meditation and started to just walk around and there was this 18 foot high Chinese decorated wall around you know and just started to walk walk along it, and, and, and he said, after a while I started to get annoyed. Like you know, this is, this is you know, two hundred fifty acres. You're gonna walk all the way around it. That's like some kind of pilgrimage or something. We came. It's closed. But I walked behind him, fuming a little bit. He said, and after we'd walked about three or four hundred yards. All of a sudden, the gate, and the fence, and all that just disappeared. It was only the facade, actually. And the rest of it had no fence around it at all. And so we walk right in. And that's often the way it is, you know. You think it's a certain way. And then if you stay present, something else will open. And it does. And it always will.